Hello team and welcome to episode 297 of the Simply Fit podcast. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with Nick Littlehales. Nick is an elite sports sleep coach and author who has spent the last couple of decades working with athletes at the highest level to achieve better recovery and sleep. His practices have been implemented by Manchester United, the England national team, Team Sky, and many teams across the NBA and the NFL. Nick's methodology and practical approach to sleep and rest has revolutionized the sporting world's approach to recovery and so many people worldwide who have been willing to take on his guidance. In this episode, you can expect to learn why getting eight hours of sleep at night is actually a myth, how to get more rest if you don't have more time to sleep, and how to navigate seasonal affective disorder and periods of the year where the days are shorter and darker. So without further ado, Nick Lettelhaus. Nick Lettelhaus, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Alex. It's uh, great to be with you. Looking forward to the chat. Yeah, likewise. I'm looking forward to having you on on a subject that is very much spoken about, but maybe not fully understood in the way that it should be. So I'm excited to pick your brains today and go straight into it. But with that being said, for those who have may not have come across yourself before, can you give us a little context about who you are and what it is that you do? It's a bit of a long journey, but I, I sort of uh, loved sports as a teenager. Uh, I did it sort of semi-professionally for a bit, but then I fell into the sleep industry, getting married and stuff like that into a family business. I, I ended up becoming an international sales and marketing director for a big sort of comfort group, big brand that took me around the world. We're at the forefront as a big brand in the subject of sleep. So I met a lot of sleep experts and clinicians and also saw how everybody approached it around the world. I was part of a team that set up the first UK Sleep Council, and I was the chairman of that. And then probably a little midlife crisis in my early 40s, just realized that sleep was continued to take for granted, not a performance criteria. There was no definitive approach. So I was going to go off and do something completely different. And this was back in the late 90s, a couple of decades ago. Uh, I just happened to do one or two things, which meant I fell into the world of sport, which happened to be a football club called Manchester United that was local to where my UK office was. So I was doing my sort of gardening leave of 12 months as a director and um, conversations started to happen. The manager at the time was Alex Ferguson, who was very open to new ideas. So what basically I did is started to communicate my interpretation of some of the key aspects about sleep that was being ignored. So that turned into a journey which went through uh, England squads, uh, Euro championships, various different clubs. Uh, culminated with British Cycling and Team Sky around 2008-9 when we started to look at the aggregation of marginal gains, couldn't ignore sleep. So I was brought in to provide a a sort of uh, approach in that area. That led on to putting the first British rider on the Tour de France podium, Sir Bradley Wiggins, busting gold medal records left, right and centre on the track and on the road, and um, a really successful London 2012 Olympics. And that really started the conversation around sleep. That sort of shifted a little bit because, you know, a couple of decades we've gone from no tech to tech everywhere. So our behaviours have really been shifting quite dramatically over those couple of decades. And I wrote a book, got asked to write a book in 2016, and that rattled off into 17 languages, still being published today. Uh, And that broadened me into, you know, while I was hidden away in the world of sport in some respects, the book sort of opened me up to absolutely everybody. And so I have been passing on my knowledge and techniques to any human being you could think of, because everybody sleeps, but whether it's doctors, GPs, male, female, students, you name it, uh, have just been really enjoying the content of the book and how it's helped them to almost, you know, game change their lives. So there you go. That's me. I think you did very well to condense that into just a five-minute snippet or so. Uh, Yeah, yeah, yeah. It can get a bit longer if it's... uh, Depending on the time of day, Elliot, because I'm a morning chronotype, so you're catching me in the good phase of my day because later on that probably would have taken 25 minutes. That's good to know, given that would be probably half the interview. So I'm glad that we can uh, go into that and dis- yeah, get that into a bit of a condensed version. But yeah, for those who want to hear more about your story, I know that you've come across with a little bit more detail in other podcasts. And one that I did listen to was regarding obviously your time at Manchester United and then how that led on to a lot of interest around who you were. Then the newspapers started reporting you as a sleep coach. And that's kind of how you became what you're known to be. And I'm keen to hear, obviously, uh, Sarah X Ferguson is quite a pioneer in terms of 
of the way that he managed Manchester United Football Club. And I can imagine a lot of other different football managers looked up to them and probably couldn't deny their success. Do you think that had you reached out to maybe a second division team, maybe like a championship team at the time, do you think it would have had the same impact that it then went on to have? Because of course, then Man United went on to win the treble. Do you think that was a really key point of your story? If it was anyone but Sir Alex that you know, you know maybe approached, maybe that would have worked out in that same way and we might not be looking at sleep in the same manner? Uh, I don't think at the time that would have been any other club that would have even started that conversation, you know, because it wasn't a definitive approach. It wasn't like, oh, I'm a sleep coach and this is what I do. It was literally more a conversation about what doesn't go on when the players are away from the training ground and the physios and the medics and, and playing their sport. So what happens when they're away from that? So it, it, it was it was sort of what maybe there are some gains to be had to provide knowledge in a practical way. And he was, there was a few people at the time I became aware of. One was Sam Allardyce, who was at Bolton at the time. And they were just very open to kind of like, well, if we don't do anything in that particular area, why not? Let's at least answer that question. And um, I suppose, yeah, absolutely. I think any other person, that conversation would have stopped, you know, at an event where we were, that wouldn't have even developed on. But there was another key player called Dave Fever, who was a physio at the time at the club. And he he was very, very interested in the potential of that from a physical aspect of like physical recovery when the player's not with him. So, you know, we, he created a word called dehabilitation while he's rehabilitating somebody. They're debilitating themselves when he's when he's, they're not with him. So that's really where some of it started. But at the end of the day, it was the football club down the road from my UK office. It wasn't picked. It wasn't anything like that. So it was just a, a coincidence of timing and Sir Alex Ferguson and I suppose, you know, me as well. Absolutely. I think there's obviously a lot of right time, right place, but you also have to come with the right idea. Otherwise, nothing's going to happen realistically. So it's incredible how all those things came together. So obviously, uh, sleep and other practices within nutrition, funnily enough, I was speaking to the nutritionist of the Qatar international football team yesterday as well. And he mentioned that during his time at Qatar national team, they kind of overlooked the power of nutrition, kind of the same way that sleep has been overlooked, kind of the same way that strength and conditioning work has been overlooked, especially in the sports that maybe it's not so much a prerequisite in order to compete like football, for example. Strength and conditioning is obvious for rugby, but maybe not so obvious when it comes to football. But now we get to a stage where I think those things are they are basically recognized for what they deserve to be recognized for. However, I would say in the general population, there's still many of us who are not quite acknowledging the importance of nutrition, the importance of sleep. Why is it still so overlooked among the general population? Because I feel like athletes are probably getting the point, but us general population are still struggling to understand the importance of really why we should be sleeping. I think it's just because it's been an ongoing process of a lack of education. It's, it's like the fourth health pillar that sort of is something we do when there's nothing else left to do. We know how important it is to us, but it's not a performance criteria. So whatever, whether you're a parent, whether you're a nurse, whether you're an athlete, whether you're a coach, whatever it is, you are going to go and do those activities that you have planned, right? However well you've slept. So it's kind of like it has no value because it's not going to have an impact on what you do the following day. You'll just feel unrefreshed you might feel tired you but you're still going to do it it's just like you know going to an exam you're not going to turn up and say i can't do it because i didn't sleep well last night so it, it's kind of an ongoing process but i think like you pointed out uh, with nutrition and exercise we're still going on about it today like you pointed out and, and it's still a struggle to to get people to you know to consider their diets and consider their exercise so I think the one thing I would tell anybody, uh, because in sport it, it becomes a specific thing, is that when you look at nutrition, when you look at training, when you look at exercising, and whether that's mental and physical stuff that you do, is it's all going to be diminished, right? Not necessarily that noticeable to you, but it will be diminished because if you recover well, your brain is able to function, optimize its functionality, then that means that everything else you do will benefit from it. So rather than seeing it as, I've done everything I needed to do, now I'm going to sleep and get my eight hours sort of thing, you're sort of like, you put your recovery as a, as a key component 
to your mental and physical activities. And when you start to think like that, it becomes a human performance factor that then reveals something about you that you didn't know was there. So it's like this 1% factor. Or for some people, it's like you're in a shadow of your former self. So I kind of try to get people to understand that it's not doing nothing. There is other ways of achieving this recovery rather than just one nocturnal block. And it's only when they wander into that area and go, I didn't realize that because of lack of education. Parents don't pass anything on. Coaches don't tell you anything. So it kind of, it just becomes... I never knew that. So I'm going to start doing that tomorrow. And wow, I just feel so much better and I can achieve more, more productive. So it's that sort of storyline that people pass on and go, what are you doing? Oh, you shouldn't do that. You should do it like this. And that's how the journey starts. But it has been a hell of a long period of time when I've been trying to give up many times and been told to give up because nobody cares about it. Uh, It's certainly a bigger subject today, but I think for everybody listening to this, there is a great danger that it's fear, right? If you don't do this and you don't do that, you're going to die or you get Alzheimer's or Parkinson's or your, your things are going to be dysfunctional. So it's not about fear of recovery. It's actually amazing recovery and treat it like that. And then you've got a good place to start. Yeah, that's a fantastic reflection. And it proves true in the work that I do. And I prioritize people's nutrition and training, of course, their sleep as well. But a big component of when I work with a client on a health and fitness basis is that we start to shift their diet around a little bit. And all of a sudden, they go from feeling lethargic and terrible to experience, oh, actually, I can feel 10 times better. But like you said, they've never really experienced that before. They just know that they have to get up, they have to attend to their kids, they have to go to their work. But then they're like, well, actually, I can now thrive versus just navigate my days with how I'm feeling and have more coffees when I get tired. Like I can actually feel good. So it's great. I think, yeah, it makes such a huge difference. And I think a lot of people will experience the same thing with sleep, but a lot of people do have that unhealthy relationship because as you've pointed out, they believe that sleep is pointless. They go to bed tired, they wake up tired. So they're like, what's the point if I go get eight hours, I'm just going to feel the same way as six. So how do you think we can begin to repair our relationship with sleep? Obviously understanding how it makes us feel when we do give it a chance, but how do we get people to give it a chance in the first place? What I sort of started to investigate, uh, we put the first uh, recovery room into Manchester United because they started doing double up pre-season training sessions. So training in the morning and the afternoon. So what do they do in the middle of that? So fortunately, we were able to set up a recovery room and it was like, what on earth is that? You know, they're very common today, but it was, well, we are going to encourage the players to, you know, nap, sleep, take some sleep midday. Why? Well, because that's very natural to us as human beings, because we've always slept polyphasically, which is multiphasic periods throughout a day. So we can do that, can't we? We can actually, and they will do it if they create their own environment. So it's kind of the first place you want to go is tap circadian rhythms in your browser. We're all very much more aware about being connected with our natural world. And circadian rhythms is is very much about you as a human being with a brain and bodily functions that should be synchronized with this rolling 24-hour process and particularly around light exposure, right? So that's a critical first step. Then you sort of understand that your body and your brain wants to do things at certain phases throughout the day, like eating and drinking, hydrating, but also recovery. And that can take many different forms. You then understand that, you know, you may have heard of owls and larks. You may have heard of chronotypes, maybe not. But we all know about morning people and nighttime people. So it is a little genetic twist. So we can camouflage it, ignore it, override it. But actually, if you had full control, you react to this circadian process, particularly around light. You react to it slightly differently to, from an AM to a PM. So that means your 24 hours looks a little bit different. But all the PMers live in an AMers world. So it's kind of more difficult for the PMers to operate in an AMers world than it is for the AMer. Anyway, the third one to get everybody started is create, to stop worrying about sleep because it's its biggest disruptor. Your brain is in control. When you enter a sleep state, whether you allocate 20 hours, eight hours, six hours, whatever you allocate to it, you're not in control. So your brain takes over. So when you start to understand that, you then change your perspective. And what you do is forget about how well you sleep. You take no notice of it. 
What you do is reset every morning and you go through a process of trying to do as many things as possible that helps your brain so that when you do present yourself to go into a sleep state, it takes over, goes looking for the great stuff and gives you optimized recovery. Now, so take the complete emphasis away from the nocturnal sleep and bring it right the way down is what do you do as soon as you open your eyes first thing in the morning? And what do you do throughout your day? And just to add to that as a little bit of a context, the first thing I understood, one of the things I understood apart from synchronized circadian rhythms and chronotypes, how important that is. But also inside a clinic, they would look at brainwave patterns in a 90-minute cycle, some 60, some most 90. So what they're looking for is how the brain is hunting for these various stages of sleep. And they're all good, but some are better than others. And we'd all know deep sleep, REM sleep, right? Now, there's a process going on that it looks for that process in the first cycle, then the second cycle, then the third cycle. So five 90-minute cycles is 7.5 hours. That gives a little bit more definite, you know, definition to what eight hours means. And you start thinking in cycles. And as soon as you start doing that, you start to understand about your recovery approach that's not, it's not wasting valuable time. It's not doing nothing, but it actually makes you go quicker, go faster from managing stress, managing anxiety, taking advantage of positive things, managing negative things. And you just roll through 24 hours back to back to back. There's no, there's no Monday or Sunday. There's no weeks. It is literally just a rolling 24 hour process that you just keep doing little things every 90 minutes. For example, it creates a lovely rhythm and suddenly by default, you stop thinking about it. And by default, up goes your level of recovery. So do you think that this whole idea of getting one solid monophasic sleep cycle of just that whole eight hours is one of the biggest myths that we've been sold across like the past century of sleep? Well, it's actually the title on the front of my book, which scared me a bit because, you know, you're sort of making a big old statement here because you ask anybody, you know, how many hours they try and get and they'll come up with this number eight, but they don't really know why. It's just a number that rattles around. And when you look at the human beings on the planet, as I traveled around, you go, well, how does that apply to people in the Northern Hemisphere or Southern Hemisphere? Or how does it apply to that to surgeons and nurses and pilots and also and parents with kids completely disrupting their sleep pattern? So I thought, well, what it basically is, is again, tap it in your browser, look at human sleep cycles, and you will see that up until the electric light was developed around the 1930s, that human beings never, ever tried to sleep in one block nocturnally. They would be more synchronized with the rolling 24 hours because of their relationship with light, diminished light and dark. They would sleep in a polyphasic manner, which might be biphasic twice a day, triphasic three times a day, multiphasic, which could be six times a day, and crazy phasic. And you could apply those to how does a single-handed round-the-world sailor be at sea for three months and they can only sleep when these 10 pieces of criteria are in place to leave the deck and try to go into a sleep state. Even then, we'd only do it for 26 minutes or so because they have to go back and check. Now, how do we do that? You know, how do we sometimes don't sleep at all because we're anxious or adrenaline or or worry or just excited, and yet we still smash it the following day? So it's kind of, why is that? So you sort of think, well, the monophasic approach, which is get all of your eight hours, sort of eight hours is 30-odd percent of 24. So there's no sort of argument against human beings need to have eight hours plus worth of recovery in a rolling 24-hour basis. But it doesn't have to be focused specifically on the fourth phase of the day, nocturnal, right? So when you start to think of it like that, you think, well, yeah, I do have, I am aware of siestas. Now, nobody's really going to sleep in that period, but what they do is do different things between one and three, right? So they they work a little bit later or start a bit earlier. They're still in restaurants at one o'clock at night with their kids. And you go, wow, wow, wow. So it is a myth. Because have you ever met anybody who gets eight hours solid sleep with no awakenings, no disturbance, three, six, five? Never mind seven days. Nobody, all it is is we're allocating the time, but nobody's actually sleeping fully through that period. Even people who 
fall asleep really quickly and then the alarm goes off sort of eight hours later and they've got bed hair and everything and they just went, well, I slept all the way through. But if you actually looked at it carefully, most of that was in light sleep. So they still feel unrefreshed. So it's kind of, it's kind of, I think, when you asked before about the question, I mean, everybody's got trackers and now trackers track sleep. And you go, wow, suddenly that's doing that now when we haven't even started the educational process. So you start thinking, well, now I'm starting to look at actually what's happening. And whilst they're still guessing and still making a bit of a guess at what's happening because it's not brainwave patterns, you still start thinking about, wow, deep sleep does not get revealed on my tracker from sort of three o'clock onwards. Why is that? I need to improve that. Nick, I want to get more deep sleep in the final hours before I go to sleep, not just in the early hours. Well, if you actually know that your brain will not go looking for deep sleep beyond two or three o'clock in the morning in a cycles basis, then that's why. And that's why a lot of people wake up at two or three o'clock in the morning, feel wide awake and can't get back to sleep and worry about it. So it's kind of once you shift, you know, using that lovely word mindset to what it is, and how it's revealed, you suddenly stop worrying about it. And it's a, it's a wonderful place to get to when you, you start to think of it like that. So it is a myth, but not, not the amount of recovery. Nobody's arguing about that, but I sort of look to get, to get my eight hours in a 24-hour process or 35 cycles in a week, right? So sometimes you have to mess around. With, but as long as I've got a, a foundation to work on, and that is... I've got an anchor point, you know, a reset point, which is the most consistent start to my day, you know, which for me happens to be 6.30. I chop the day up into 90-minute cycles to create some rhythm. And that gives me 16 cycles in every 24 hours. And then I start to think about what am I doing in each particular cycle as it rolls all the way through to help me when I go into a sleep state, give my brain a chance. But it also gives these nice little timing points subconsciously. I'm not wandering around with a wristband going off at it, you know, oh, more, more routines but you just become very conscious that you know my five cycle routine is between 11 and 6 30 uh, my four cycle routine is 12 30 into 6 30 uh, my three cycle is 2 a.m into 6 30 so it's always into the reset point so if i've got you know football games late at night or you've got this and birthday parties and social engagements and traveling and time zones and all sorts of stuff you can actually just move your recovery approach around this dial, knowing that you're keeping the rhythm, not doing things randomly. You know? Big answer to your question, sorry. It's a perfectly well-answered approach to that question. In terms of the fact that most of us do feel that pressure to get the eight hours probably is the biggest thing that actually prevents us from getting the quality sleep that we want, right? And then obviously the time zone differences, like I said, when we travel or the staying up late at night and the concern about that. And it's that being tied to those eight hours a night, thinking that's the only time we can get our rest that causes us the pressure. And then we have one bad night and it rolls into another. And then it's like, where do I catch up with myself? So no, I can completely see the value of that. And I feel like it's so much more applicable to those who maybe have um, young families as well. You know, people waking up in the night to tend to their children. It just seems like a much, much more practical approach. I wished I'd known all of that when I had my first child and second child, you know, and and that's why I say, you know, as the book's gone out there, you've got parents coming on. I mean, there's infinite books about parenting and all that sort of stuff. But it, it then again reminds you that both you and I and everybody else comes into the world at, on a polyphasic sleep pattern, right? The brain is in control of the formative growth years. You sleep for a period of time, probably 18, 20 hours out of the 24, and you're waking up for short blocks. Then that shifts you know, down, 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 down into sort of adolescence when it starts to settle at around this sort of eight hour thing, right? So it's really important parents to know is that you don't fight this thing. If you're sleeping with a polyphasic mindset before the child even is conceived, and then by the time it comes along, you're in complete harmony with this child because you've had that approach anyway. Most parents try to get children to sleep monophasically one block at night, not for the benefit of the child. It's for the benefit of the parents trying to have some social space. Yeah, it's a very, very good point. And on that note as well, if we are a parent who's looking to try and implement 
more of a polyphasic approach. Where do we start practically? Because I know a lot of people, and myself included, feel guilty when they go to sleep during the day. They have this like, I should be doing something mindset. Like I can't sleep during the day. What do you think I, who do you think I am? Snoozers for losers. Exactly. So how do we overcome that? <laughs> I think the way you overcome it is, is doing some fairly basic things. You know, when, when we go out into the garden or when we walk along the river or when we go camping or when we go walking, when we're outside, strangely enough, the world doesn't seem as bad as it actually appears, right? We, we find some calm right? It's, we get a little bit more human being, the planet, the sun going around it, nature, babbling brooks, that sort of thing. We suddenly go, ah, things are not that bad, right? So we know what that feels like. We also know that if I'm looking at chaos, problem solving, uh, trying to be professional in an occupation or being a parent, whatever it is, is if you're constantly doing that, then your brain is processing that what's happening in front of you. If you just turn away and look outside, what happens is your brain starts processing that. So it's, you start to get what is recovery. Yeah. It's not about going to sleep, right? So you change that perspective. It's about a vacant mind space. It's about creating a moment for you and your brain to be able to create this type of emotional reset, which helps the brain and helps you go through each period of that day. So I call them controlled recovery periods, simply because I don't want to be talking about napping. I talk about human recovery performance. Uh, you know, as well as everybody listens to this, you know, HRV, heart rate variability, is, is a key performance tracker in that sense. Well, human recovery variabilities, right? You go, well, there's so many little things outside influences, so many variables that can come along and will have that little impact on you and your brain and its ability to recover. So you're always in a constant sort of reset process. And so we call them controlled recovery periods. Everybody listening to this, whether it's happened to them or not, will know that there are big signs on a motorway that says tiredness can kill, take a break. Now it's not there just as a bit of advertising. This is because on a motorway, on an autobahn, in the most dangerous place you're probably likely to put yourself, your brain can microsleep you, right? We know we can fall asleep on a tube, on a train, you know, on a plane, sitting with loads of other human beings, the back of a car, behind the wheel of a car. So falling asleep in front of the telly, you know, mid-afternoon. So we know all of these things. So what you do is you look at it differently and say, what are... Can you identify some things that you could classify as being a controlled recovery period? And that can last just a couple of minutes, right? It could last 30 minutes because that's 30% of a 90-minute cycle, which is a, that nap period. It could be 30 minutes late afternoon to balance your four phases where you're literally providing some space for you and your brain. It's a vacant mindset. It can be, you know, all the obvious things like meditation, mindfulness, or just listening to music, or just doing something completely different, like learning some new chords on your guitar for 20 minutes. You're not trying to put yourself into a sleep state. But the more you create those moments in a polyphasic way, everything else becomes far more productive. So you can think about You've got a hydration bottle. Everybody's walking around with them. I mean, my daughter's got one that's like so big because it's about two and a half liters worth of water in there and she's carrying it around because that's what everybody does. You know, and it's sort of like, well, look, why don't we think about if your office space, for example, just half fill the hydration bottle? Because that means once you've moved that down within a 60, 90 minute period, you then go somewhere to refill it. And that could be standing by the kitchen window or the canteen window. And just for those few minutes, it's a nice little recovery break and you come back and keep going. So I think what we're sort of saying to everybody, as everybody will know if they know anything about me, is I'm in my early 60s. That means I am very fortunate enough to have spent the majority of my life without technology and phones. Right? So there was lots of recovery opportunities. They weren't planned for because we still just did our eight hours, get to sleep, see in the morning. But there was loads of moments in every day where 
we were still thinking, we were still doing stuff, but there are more to do with recovery aspects, like people watching, waiting for a, a bus. <laughs> now we're emailing invoices to our our suppliers, you know what I mean? It's a, and going on social media. So all it is is just going, look, one thing hasn't changed, and if anything, well, it's two things that hasn't changed, and if one of those things changes, then we're in big trouble. So it's the sun going around the planet, it's your brain, and you're a human being with bodily functions. Now, let's just take some time out, because we keep doing things every decade. We invented electric light never thought about the consequences, just the benefits, right? So we start sleeping monophasically, not thinking about the consequences. We introduce daylight saving time in the war years, and it only affects a few elements of this world. Most of the population don't get affected, but it should be getting rid of because it creates a disharmony with the seasons and light. We invent technology. We invent technology two, three, four, faster, quicker, instant, this, bang, 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 without any sort of the speed of change. And so suddenly you find yourself in a place. Why would you expect your brain to be able to give you a level of recovery you deserve when constantly in every moment of your day, you're asking it to adapt. And it will, because it's an amazing organ. But if it's constantly adapting and has no rhythm that it wants with that natural process, you've got no chance and it will continue to have no chance. When, when we started to track data back in the late 90s, I mean, there was no sports science I mean, data tracking was very simplistic. And all the big forerunners of, of starting to track data, track data, absolutely loved it and couldn't wait to know absolutely everything about anything. And, and the majority of those people today now take an approach of data tracking intrusion and are looking at specific bits of data rather than the whole lot, because it can create a sort of uh, a prison cell for any individual they just can't get out of because everything's being looked at. Uh, and that's very much which brings you into the world of, you know, mental health and well-being. And, and the, so it's kind of, if you really want to look at your mental and physical health and well-being as an individual, as a human, the first thing you want to do is give it a chance and start to create some lovely little recovery. And I, I can give I can give a good example if you wanted it, but, you know, I'll end that bit with that, you know. Yeah, I think that'd be really practical because a lot of people will just automatically assume, okay, I just need to take a nap, but they won't think about those five, 10 minute refreshes. So yeah, give us some practical ways that people can start doing Because I'm starting to think that maybe the working from home thing made things even worse because if those quote unquote water cooler breaks were built into most people's day when they wanted to go gossip with their colleagues, but now they're obviously doing it from their kitchen counter, right? So that's right. You sort of, you know, you everything might say, well, I can't do this and I can't do that. And it's like, well, I tell you now, and you you mentioned it at the start of this, is that, you know, give me a little background on you, Nick. And wow, that was cool. It only took a few minutes. That's what I mean, is we do waste lots of time every day, right? And that's why we can't fit things in. And when you only sort of think about it, is if is if you can be a bit more bit more attuned with what you're doing. So you'll you'll say things with a little bit more clarity. You'll make decisions with a bit more definition. You will do things in a sort of more productive way. We all know about the graveyard slot in business just after lunch, um, which is always when I get asked to go in and do a workshop inside an office building directly after lunch. And everybody's falling asleep in front of me because it's that siesta period. You know, so it, all of those little factors start to come together. And I think the one, the one thing you can always find is, yes, if we're, in an, in, if we're inside for any period of time, when we step outside, never mind what the weather's like, suddenly that sort of deep breath of fresh air, that sort of, oh, it's sort of like there's a weight off my shoulders. It feels good. Well, I had a group of young athletes and uh, the coaches were saying to the athletes, you know, you need to shut your tech down at night because there's blue light coming off this tech and that's going to keep you awake all night. Right? What they really meant was, was how can we manage their exposure to technology throughout any 24 hours? So they started to use blue light as a fear factor that if you're still looking at your iPad or your device, at that, then you ain't going to sleep. Right? Sort of thing. So I was hearing this and thought, nah, blue light is amazing. Why are you telling them it's bad? It's just how it's used. So a little thing everybody can do, 
if they haven't already done it, is you go onto the App Store and get yourself uh, a little light meter, free one. Uh, Lux is the way you measure light, lumens. So a free Lux light meter. I'll, I'll show you. They can't see it. But you can see on my phone there's a little dial. Huh? And it'll start to shift. Right. So what we do is what we know is that if you and I were outside all the time as human beings, the sun would start to come towards the horizon. And inside of daylight is a thing called blue light, energy wave. And that blue light would enter our, through our eyelids. It would go into a little gland with our light receptors. And that little gland called the pineal gland would start to produce a hormone called serotonin. And that serotonin will tell the brain to unsuppress everything and make you fully functional. Right? Now, when that daylight remains, you know, sunrise to midday, and then midday to sunset, it disappears. Then you go into diminished light. And diminished light, like candlelight, firelight, and things like that, and even a lot of electric light, doesn't have blue light in it. So that's when you produce melatonin. And melatonin tells the brain to suppress functionality. So this is like a, an internal clock, like the external clock. And it's this reset point, which is called sunrise. Right? It's the anchor point to your day, which starts that process off. Right. So you would know that if you're outside all the time, the about 100,000 lux is the light levels, up to 100,000 lux, depending on the season. As human beings wandering around outside, our average exposure would be around 10,000 lux in the first two phases, right? Because we're looking up, looking down, there's trees and clouds and things like that. So if you then think, right, if I want an average of 10,000 lux, sunrise to sunset, the first two phases, so I think it's like six o'clock to six o'clock then probably every 90 minutes, I need to have about an average of 1,000 lux exposure, right? An average to keep that hormone in the right place at the right time and how to balance it. So immediately what you do is you get the little light meter. It's using the camera to measure the light. You stand outside and there it is, 70, 80,000 lux and blue light. You come inside and still by the window and it's gone down to maybe five or 6,000. You move one meter inside, even with all the lights on, no curtains, the light is still coming through the glass, and it may drop to one, two, three hundred lux, right? So where I'm sat here right now talking to you and where you're sat, suddenly what you get is this, where I'm sat now, it is not even 300 lux. So what that is doing is I'm in melatonin land, right? And it's only mid-morning. So what's happening is my brain is being told by melatonin to suppress me, but I'm trying to make myself be fully active. Right? So all I need to do when we talked about CRPs, we can't be outside all the time and we aren't doing that kind of thing. But what you know is it's light. So you can recreate the light environment inside your home and office and everything else. You know exactly the value of just going up to the window and filling up your water bottle. Because while you're standing next to the window, it's five or 6,000 locks and you're still inside. You know what's happening now. You're, it's much quicker than we ever thought. You're starting to reproduce that serotonin. So the next phase of your day is going to be so much better because serotonin manages mood, motivation, everything about you, appetite, the lot. So it's really fascinating when you start to look at it like that because you get a much better relationship with not necessarily being inside or outside, but a much better relationship with the light that you are in is completely counterproductive for what you're trying to do. And I think it became very apparent one time when I was out in Knoxville, Tennessee, working with the, the medical university there and all the graduate surgeons and stuff. But I happened to go along to a CrossFit corrugated building in Knoxville, <laughs> and there they were absolutely smashing it. And there's all lights everywhere and everything else. And and then it was just like, here you are really pushing yourselves in this sort of exercise routine, but you're doing it in a light that's trying to suppress you, right? So if you could, what do we do then? Well, change those to daylight bulbs or put more of the, the, the heavy cardiovascular stuff by the windows, right? Not hidden over there in the corner. And suddenly you just start going, well, wow. So when you walk into a gym and go, there's all the treadmills and there's all the row machines and there's all this, da, da, da. Or even if you're in a class, you immediately what you do is you have this, this light radar, you know, and I call it lightening up, lighten yourself up. So it almost becomes a subconscious thing that Everything I do without even thinking about it is if I'm going into a building and the windows are on the right, I turn right. 
to get to the same place, right? Rather than left. Whatever you're, if I'm talking to you and having a chat about this and that and whatever, then I'll, I'll maneuver you towards the window rather than standing over there. If somebody says, which office desk would you like? I go, the one by the window, not the one over here. You know, if you're taking your kids to school and you go, can we? Can my son sit in that chair? Not this one, the other side of the room. And I did it with a big school a long time ago. And they just went, we've got all these kids coming into school. We know that most of them are PMers, night, so they've dragged themselves to school. Some of them are AMers who were up early, had their breakfast, can't wait to get to school. We sit them in a room and they're all taking their exams and the windows are over that side and on this side. And we just got the light meter and went, if your son, Joe, is sat in that chair, he's being exposed to, you know, 1,500 to 2,000 lux while he's sat there. That means serotonin. That means he's functioning, right? So he won't worry about that question. He'll just try and answer it. The one over here, it's hardly 80 lux. Now, that means the same question for the same person. It'll just look more difficult. It'll appear more difficult. It'll take them longer to write down 2 plus 2 equals 4. Move on to the next one. You write 2 plus 2 equals 4, and then a little few seconds of, is that actually correct? Right? So when you're sort of looking at everything you do in your life, and you're thinking, I can't allocate 30 minutes, Nick, uh, late afternoon, 20 minutes. And then I see people going to their car in the car park and sitting in their car and knocking it out for 20 minutes before they drive home. People stopping a couple of streets away from their house before they go into their home and the wife or the partner. And there's all that sort of, you know, thing to do in the evening. They'll stop and have 20 minutes before they get home. There's all sorts of things in offices. You don't tell people you're doing these things. They just become, you know, I can have a two or three minute controlled recovery break while I'm sitting in a room with loads and loads of people all talking because I know how to let that go and just subconsciously have a little see So the light thing gets you started because you suddenly start going, wow. Then that starts to make you think about circadian rhythm. That starts to make you think about cycles. That starts to make you think about, wow, my evenings are just amazing because I don't run around like a nutcase trying to do everything. I actually have time. I have this, I have that. And so it's kind of, it's kind of one of those lovely things. It's not about, you know, just getting outside, but you know, when somebody says, you know, Going for, going for a walk or, or just going to the sandwich shop instead of, you know, not leaving your desk and eating at your desk and all this sort of stuff. Suddenly, you know, all the athletes come knocking on my door and go, hang on a minute, we're all Olympic 100-meter sprinters here. Why is that? Why is he just milliseconds quicker than me? And normally it's two things. One, how quickly they leave the block, the reaction to the gun. And the other one is, is those last one or that last meter where they're just able to keep that level of performance up. Like how many, how many football matches are won in extra time? The final minutes. So wherever you're looking at it from a, an overall performance factor or whether you just want to be you know, the best person you can more consistently and sustainably, to stop worrying about it, to, to just be able to go, I don't care how I slept last night. You know, it's irrelevant. It was part of what was going on that day. What I do is I'm thinking about 35 cycles a week. I'm thinking about what do I do every 90 minute cycles in a nice subconscious way. I'm trying to make sure that I've got levels of light. We all know about, you know, seasonal affective disorder, which we're all hitting. End of this month. Here we go. Daylight saving time. Completely non-human performance tool should get rid of it. I think the US have already passed a thing that they're trying to get rid of it by October 23. There's lots of, but it, it is sort of that thing of, wow, you have to be careful because as soon as you shift those clocks, your relationship to light will shift. Not everybody suffers from seasonal affective disorder, but everybody does at different levels. Our behavior changes, you know, don't you? It starts to become casseroles and soups instead of sprit, instead of good, you know, good smoothies and good good salads and good plant-based stuff, it shifts. We're not really that interested about getting out on the bike and doing 50 kilometers tonight because it's dark and it's colder and it's more difficult 
to do it than in the summer. So it's a real game changer. It's a very simple thing. Don't take it too scientific. But what it does is start this little process of, wow, if I just look out the window, my brain's changing the way I feel. If I just do that, my brain is changing what I can do and how I can do it. And I can now start to be far more conscious of, I have never felt like this probably ever. And all it is, is just reminding yourself, you're a human being with a brain, the light's going around this planet, and you get a little bit closer to that without ruining your life. And think about recovery in a polyphasic manner. You will, the only thing you'll ever do, which is what I get told all the time, is I wished my parents had known this. I wished they'd impact this on my upbringing because was my school years, was my formative adolescent years, could I have dealt with those better or took more advantage of them? What sort of choices and decisions did I make that, that could have been a little bit more definitive? How would I have dealt with that? It's a bit like I, I was coaching some pilots and uh, it's sort of like if you're a morning chronotype, uh, tap it in your browser. If you're a morning chronotype, then what you do is you, you can clearly see straight away that morning chronotypes like to wake early. That's because they react to the blue light quicker than the PMA. It's about two hours delay. That's serotonin kick. And there's a little gland called the adrenal gland, which gives you a kick of cortisol and adrenaline at the same time with the sun. So it creates a little clock, you know, of serotonin, melatonin role, that sort of stuff. And I was just saying to the world, it's quite clear, if you're a morning chronotype, yes, you can be a pilot. But I would focus on short haul, right? Because morning chronotypes can do it, but they are constantly adapt. They don't like long haul. The nighttime chronotype likes the long haul, right? So once you understand that, you might make a decision that you're going to you're going to be a long haul pilot for two years or three years, knowing that your recovery is going to be affected. So you'll still do the job and you'll still enjoy being a pilot, but you can't do it for 10 years, right? You can't do it for five years. You've got to have a balance and an understanding. So whether that's a good example or not, but you kind of think that certain decisions we make about occupations, about where we live, uh, about who we spend our time with, uh, friends and everything around it, you sort of, you're far more conscious of your best friend is a nighttime chronotype and you've just realized it. And you're a morning chronotype and you've just realized it. Not realized it, you knew it. It's just, I've just reminded you of it. And you just go, can we not, can we stop going to the gym at half past five in the morning before we go to work? Because I love it, but you don't. But you're still there with me, aren't they? Can't we get, you need to do something, you know, maybe increase the level of light to get the service before you go to the gym at that time in the morning. But you also need to know how that's going to have an impact on it. So suddenly, you know, that's, you know, when I answer your question, relative or not, but that's, it's a great, great sort of place to start the process and change your perception of it. Stop thinking about sleep. Yeah, I could not agree more. And I've got a few practical questions on light for you, Nick. The first is that obviously where we're from in the UK, sometimes we wake up in the morning and it's grey and we don't really see much apart from grey and then the sun sets. So is that still just as valuable to get those um, that amount of lux during the day, even during those grey days? And another question I had is the blue light in the evening as well. What is your thoughts on the blue light blocking glasses? Are they effective? Are they a bit of a waste of time? What are your thoughts on those two questions? Okay, the first question is, is there, there is always a level of light out there, whatever, you know, whether it's a gray day, a winter's day, and, and even dark, right? <laughs> There's stuff around. So use the light to get a relationship with it. So on a gray day, like that, the light level is like that. So what I do, because we can't do that, is you, when I mentioned 10,000 lux as an average, if you go looking for light therapy tools, you know, daylight lamps, dawn wake simulator lamps, things you can put on your desk, they produce 10,000 lux, strangely, because of that. So there's one on my desk. So maybe every 90 minutes, I'm not got a wristband on. I just know what 90 minutes feels like, you know, 60, 90 minutes. I'll just switch that on, right? For 10 minutes, right? 
And I carry on working, but I know that I've just raised the light level around me by 10,000 lux, so my average is going up. So I know what's going on. So you can use lamps, right? To there's little portable ones, there's little things on your desk or things. So what you know is all the light in your house with all the lights on is nowhere near that kind of level, right? So you kind of get that nice balance. So when we go into this winter period, um, you've got to remember that being outside, the light levels have dropped and they drop quicker, like at four o'clock, it's gone dark and sort of thing. So you get a relationship with that and then you can keep it up because what you're saying to yourself is this was not designed for your brain, right? This is something humans did, and it doesn't like it, right? So you have to help your brain go through those seasonal changes by increasing the level of light because we've shifted the clocks, and the same applies when we come out of it, and suddenly it's still light at 10 o'clock. So what you do, right, so it's just starts, we have to do some a consequence of daylight saving time and everything else that we do is a consequence of that is you have to manage your light levels. You can't just ignore it because that's a change. Blue blocker glasses. Uh, basically, they we've been using those for many, many years to improve the management of light, right? So if we're going to get overexposed to light, you know, during the summer months or we're spending more time outside or we're traveling, you know, and things like that, we'll use uh, those types of glasses and various other things, not just glasses, to manage our light exposure, to increase it or keep it down. When you put it into the effect of shut your tech down, what I concentrate on is using these 90-minute cycles, 16 cycles in a day, is that when you get to a certain point, what you want to be thinking about is this is information overload, right? So you can use your technology for good recovery things, right? It's not bad, you know. So if I'm if I've got my my tech and it's it's playing lovely relaxing music or meditation stuff, that's good, you know, it's good. But if I'm doing other things, so it's about managing your use. The second thing is how much blue light is coming off your tech? Because I tell you now, most of the devices around today, the level of blue light coming off that tech is so low, right? And you only have to move a centimeter back or a centimeter forward, and it changes. You can get, you can take the blue light out of all of your tech with apps and uh, with diffusers, with screen protectors. You can do what you like. So I, I'd be more interested in just basically ensuring that somebody has a lovely rhythm to their day so that when they get round to that sort of, you know, eighth cycle with five cycles, 7.5 hours, when you're getting towards that seventh and eighth cycle, you're very much focused on diminished light. And that's not dark. That's where you're sat right now, okay? It's a few hundred look. And you're, you're in that kind of environment producing the right level of hormone so you can then move towards that place and be asleep. I really don't think that if you're focused on, you know, that the, the generation that's been brought up fully immersed in this world, you know, you can't tell them, can't tell us to get rid of it. It's, it, it's the most functional thing in our lives. It does everything for us. So it's more to do with just getting a better understanding of how to manage it. And the last thing I would want somebody to do is, is I say to Elliot, oh, by the way, you can continue to look at your device till 12, 1 o'clock at night, as long as you've got your glasses on. Do you know what I mean? It's like... What? No, no, no. I actually want Elliot to stop. You know, I don't mind him listening to stuff and watching David Attenborough films that makes him feel great or whatever it is, you know what I mean? I don't mind him doing all of that sort of stuff. What, what basically I don't want is, is, is putting more stuff inside my brain and expecting it to forget about it immediately and not keep processing what's going on and creating more to-do lists and creating more things to think about. So I think what we're trying to emphasise is to is to create this lovely balance to your day and to think about what you're doing and why you're doing it. And uh, I think once you've got a really nice definitive approach, uh, which includes that particular area of light exposure, uh, it really does help. So you sort of think, you know, get your reset point, consistent start to the day, whatever that is, minus 6.30, chop your day up into 90-minute cycles. So you've got 16 of those. Gives you a nice, nice rhythm to your day about what you're doing in that cycle, that cycle, that cycle. It starts to put some emphasis of your relationship with you in your brain, and bingo, you can just then look at the seven days in front of you and go, my target is 35 cycles, so many CRPs, and balance it like that and just get on with it, you know? What we're trying to emphasize to everybody is that you can make more considered choices about when you bring in interventions and things like blue blocker glasses or this or anything else that's available to us that, that may help to try and 
help us sleep is more considered approach. You create a lovely natural approach, which is your first step. And that is the process of get a nice reset start to your day, a consistent wake time, a consistent start. Do that, chop your day up into 90-minute cycles, gives you 16 cycles, create some rhythm and balance to that, what you're doing in every cycle, uh, right through to the point when you're going into nocturnal sleep. Think about polyphasic recovery approach. It's not about sleeping, it's vacant mind space CRPs. And when you get that lovely rhythm, then you can bring in interventions, but they become productive rather than counterproductive. And that's, that's really where you start with this whole process of redefining your approach to sleep. Mm, and one thing you mentioned to me earlier is that you wish your parents knew and they were able to impart that wisdom onto yourself. I know that you have children. So what do you do for them in terms of their sleep? Are they able to stay up late into their day because of they're trying to split up their sleep cycles? Do they play that card on you? My parents didn't do anything to me. I think my two children and their and their children now, we've got five grandkids now, but they um I think they've sort of their their approach to their parenting around sleep is a little bit more, you know, let's say wiser because knowledge of what their dad does and, and they've read my book and they know what they do. So it is a little bit sort of looking at two children and and sort of going, well, maybe they have two different chronotypes. You can see some of those things going on. Maybe adopting this polyphasic approach means you know you're outside and 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 thinking about recovery and you balance your overall approach so they learn from that and they're quite happy to because they don't know what a recovery break is is because that's how you act around them so they just learn from that and it becomes part of their knowledge and certainly you know don't expect them to to do exactly the same things at the same times you know because you've adopted that approach then you won't impart that onto them so you know, it's a bit like asking me to do my homework in the morning. I'll smash it. If you ask me to do it early evening, I just can't be bothered. It's not the right time of day for me. Um, it's like getting up in the morning and jumping out of bed and having breakfast and getting your uniform on and off you go to school and you'll love it. But the other one, you can't drag them out of bed. So you need to help them with a, a lamp in the room that will help that particular chronotype, that individual. So I think, I think once you sort of, you know, as even prior to, you know, whether you have parent, you become a parent or not, whether you have a regular sleeping partner, whatever it is that you bring into your life, it just helps enormously with that sort of knowledge that that's what you're doing all the time. So anything that comes in to your world like children, you can actually use that to help them enormously. And I won't blame my parents, but maybe I could have passed a few more exams if they'd done a little bit better. Mm-hmm. I think we're going to have... A brighter, a knowledgeable, um, a much better decision-making future with those who are all set to make these great choices after the quality of sleep they're getting. Now they have all the information. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it, it's um, it's very much. It's not about an older generation. It's not about gender. It's not about anything at all. It's about uh, wherever you are on this planet, whatever you're doing on this planet. I think uh, it's it's a a really a really game-changing thing to get a grasp of this health pillar and make it the first one to everything else. And the, the the younger athletes, let's say, you don't have to tell them to eat well. You don't have to tell them to exercise. You don't have to tell them to be committed to something and try to do all the good things that helps them perform at the highest level in what they're doing. But the bit that helps them do that is their ability to recover and not waste valuable time doing it without the benefits. So it's a real win situation for a young person because the last thing they want to do is spend over 30% of their day doing something that's not revealing performance things. So that's where it comes into everybody's world, you know, just be the best you possibly can. Yeah, I could not agree more. This conversation has been insightful. Nick, thank you so much for your time today. Where's the best place for people to keep up with the work that you're doing and to find your book as well? It's sportsleepcoach.com. Or you tap Nick Little Hales in your browser, you'll find it sportsleepcoach.com. That's where we, we sit. Um, there's lots of good free content up there. There's an audible book you can just download and, and start your journey with the R90 technique, as it's called, and the seven KSRIs. You can get my book, you know, all good bookstores, Amazon, whatever. It's a quick 90-minute read, probably change your life. So worth a shot. You can listen to it on Audible. All the normal platforms, Instagram, Twitter, you know, LinkedIn, Facebook, that sort of thing. We, you know, I don't post stuff unless I feel it is of some benefit to somebody. So that's the way I am. But there you go. It's I would advise everybody if if it's just making a few little steps to change your perception of sleep, you'll be amazed 
and everything else that sort of will start to shift around you. So good luck to everybody with that. And thanks very much for having me on. The pleasure is truly mine. I feel that a lot of people are going to take value from this and hopefully we're going to have a lot more rested listeners moving forward. Thank you again for your time, Nick. No problem at all, Eric. Thank you. And that was the Simply Fit Podcast. I hope you gained a huge amount of value from today's episode. I feel inspired to improve your health and well-being. Be sure to search for Simply Fit in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts from. And go ahead and subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, if you like the episode, please don't forget to give it a five-star rating. I'd love to hear your feedback or any questions you have. So reach out to me on social media. You'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Elliot Hassoun. Thank you so much for listening. And I look forward to talking with you all on the next one.